Welcome to this special edition of Why Always Us, the Manchester City podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Sam Lee, and for this one, I'm going to be hosting the show, which is a little unusual for me and especially daunting because not only does our guest today know much more about football than me, but he also knows much more about hosting podcasts. Neda Manua, it's an absolute <laughs> pleasure to have you on, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you, especially after that intro. I'll start with a very broad question. Hopefully it leads us down all kinds of different avenues. So everything considered, how do you sum up your time at the club? Ah, that is a good question. And yeah, it could go in many different ways. Um, looking back now as an older as an older player, like I feel very privileged to have been there for that time and to have seen the club go through what it went through and to have been a part of the history of what is without question now one of the most exciting clubs in all of world football. And for perspective, when I first joined, um, I was the first player to sign just when it became an academy. This was at 10 years of age. Before that, it was a centre of excellence. So that was the first step in, the, in that direction. And then for the first few years, we were competing as an academy, but overall we were losing a lot. Of, we were losing a lot of games, and it was all about United, Liverpool, teams like that. But then as things progressed, the club was improving as well um, on the main stage. And now you look at it, and as I say, it's without question one of the one of the biggest and best football clubs in the whole world. So to say that I've had a significant part of those years is um yeah i'm i'm very very happy what would you say was the best memory you've got of being a city player the best memory uh i think it feels to be results based and stuff like that i remember one time when we beat uh we beat united at old trafford when sven goran erickson was men it was manager and that's when benjani and the rise for sale scored and we were so unfancied but for me personally i guess it was just the way that I ended up making my making my debut and just becoming a part of the first team. I was going to college at the same time. I was just enjoying it. Then all of a sudden I got a phone call from Les Chapman. He said, what number do you want? And I said, I, I don't know. And they said, I'll give you 16. He gave me 16. And then from that point, I was basically in every squad or involved in the first team for a, to be considered for a game from that point onwards for the next seven, eight years. So, yeah, I think... For me, that high of making the transition from being a reserve team player to just being one of the first team players was, was probably my high, yeah. That game against United you mentioned, was that 2008, February? Yeah, I think that's the one, yeah. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. a weird game. I, rem- I was at that game. Do you know, remember it being a really weird atmosphere when it came out? Because obviously it was the it was the anniversary of the Munich disaster, wasn't it? And it was just, I know what you mean, the all the build-up was about United and all of that. But I remember the atmosphere in that game at the start being so weird. That's the only abiding memory I've got of that game. I just remember it yeah, being really sure. weird. Yeah, for sure. Like, as I say, for me as well, I'm, I'm a blue, so I spent years up until that point being a part of the City team and watching City teams just get beaten twice a year by United if we were in the same division. So to then be at that point where, again, we're going to Old Trafford and United thinking he's going to collect the three points and then they're going to have their memorial game and everything's going to be this with the limited edition shirts and all that stuff. But now, like, we, we spoiled it. And I'll never forget, as we were walking off the field that day, there were some United fans who ran all the way down to the tunnel and the abuse they were giving us. And I could see for the very first time in my, li- in my lifetime, City were really under United skin. That was, the, that was a real, real nice moment. I enjoyed that. So, yeah, that was a, it was a crazy day. And the other thing is you mentioned was the education. That got you into a few scrapes in the dressing room as you were coming through. Not so much scrapes, but a bit of a, a blunt introduction to life in a, in a men's dressing room, wasn't it, your educational background? Yeah, it, it certainly was, yeah, because a lot of the guys who were playing, 
like around that sort of time, the average age was a lot older. So most of the people there had left any type of education long behind. And, you know, some of the people that might still be doing stuff, they even they'd finished most of that stuff as well. So I was going in there. I was a 17-year-old. I was actively doing college work because that's what I had to do. But then I also had the commitment of actually being a professional footballer as well. So, you know, when you then when you make that step to a first team, everything that came before and whoever you are, it's irrelevant because now you're one of them. So you're going to be judged based on not what you were doing before, but like what you're doing right now. So when other people were just trying to relax, they'll be playing cards or something at the back of the bus. Like sometimes I just I just have my textbook out because I'm trying to learn something because I have an exam in a few days. So I got into, um, I, I got jokes around. There were a few jokes about me and all that stuff, but ultimately something which I had to do. And yeah, I was, um, it certainly made it memorable. Let's just say that. Who were the main kind of, Characters in that dressing room at the time, then probably talking Ben Thatcher's, Robbie Fowler's, John Mackins, Sean Wright first was very was was there as well. Um, Paul Bosfelt's, Claudio Reina was there. I think there, there were so many players, but like I say, apart from maybe Sean Wright and like a Joey Barnett or whatever, this, this squad was just that little bit older. So the humour was a little bit older. It was a bit more, um, I would you say, uh, aggressive. Let's just say. So as a young player, as you're coming in, um, you'll definitely do some hostility. And yeah, I'd say I took, I took quite a lot of that. How long did it take until you felt you know, more, more comfortable, I suppose? Because it, it must be a, a daunting experience for any young footballer. But I don't know, that sounds especially difficult. Do you know, it wasn't really daunting as such because ultimately I was around the first, in and around the first team. And a few of my other peers were because at the time for City, there was a big chain of players. There was a long list of players who... Would make that who made the debut, having come through the academy, so that was more like a feel. Even though the squad was over was older overall, there were quite a few people that were in and out. So every time you go out to train, they would have all the seniors, but then there'd be one or two younger players hanging around. And then it also helps that, say like a Barton or a Sean Knight Phillips, they'd um, they'd come through the academy, so they weren't going to be on you as host as much as say the other people would be. Um, but in terms of just feeling you're part of it, I think some of that comes from just being respected by teammates, what you do on the field. I was lucky enough to have people like Sylvan Distan, Richard Dunn, Sean Phillips just directly around me. These were all good people who respected me as a person and as a player. So, you know, they're out there to make you comfortable as opposed to constantly give you grief. So it didn't, it didn't take too long overall. You made some good mates in that in that dressing room over the years, didn't you? Mates to this day. Yeah, certainly did, yeah. I think even... Um, so I can talk about people like Sean Wright Phillips, but then also around that time, people who were just before me would be like a Bradley Wright Phillips, people who were just after me, be Stephen Islands, Michael Richards. Then as time passes a bit more, you've got Joe Hartz. Then time passes further, you're bringing in some, they're bringing in players who I'm still close to to this day, like a Jolien Lescar, for example, people like Gail Clichy's and all that. I think over the years, the club overall have managed to bring in some really, really good people into that space and, you know, whether or not they've done well for the club, they've definitely added some value. Yeah, who would you say was your best teammate, you know, in terms of on the pitch with the the player you'd want with you by your side? And it's not necessarily the best player you played with, but the best teammate. So, so at its peak, I'd probably say in terms of defence, you'd probably have to go for like a Vincent company because his approach is just so aggressive to the people he's playing against. It doesn't matter whether he's playing against Messi or a guy from the fifth division. He's all out 100% making it a nightmare for them. And I really and I really respected that about him a lot because it's sometimes quite hard to do, especially when you know someone or whatever. But he was relentless. 
But then in, in terms of other positions, someone like uh, Gareth Barry, because I don't think for the last 10 years of his career he was out of position one time. He's definitely someone who I was very, very happy to be playing playing with because he puts out so many fighters, but ultimately people don't from the outside don't really appreciate him as much as the people who play with him. He's still playing, obviously, in, in MLS, and that's something that really interests me as well. But I think for a City podcast, we might keep that for another day. But, but how, how do you kind of process that now? Do, do you look back? Do you think, if I'd done this, if I'd done that, or are you just kind of at ease with, with everything and how it turned out and happy with the years that you've, you're still enjoying in, in football wherever they are do you know what? for me I'm very much at peace with it all but the biggest thing biggest takeaway for me is that as I've gotten older I've liked, I like to share experiences and thoughts with younger players when I was younger maybe I wasn't being told the level of importance about certain things because at that time maybe it was uncool maybe it wasn't like a big deal but the more information I can give to younger players now means that they should be able to have a better career than I did and play more games than I have and find more success than I have. And if I can help people get there, then that's that gives me a great sense of fulfillment than thinking, well, if only I would have done this back then, then maybe things would have been better. Like my path is my path and I'm very happy to still be playing today. But like I say, the big thing for me now is just trying to help younger players. And if it's an understanding of what it is to be a professional from literally 17, 18 years of age, then I'll make sure that they know it, whether it's a case of, having to learn the hard way for a short period of time or me just expressly saying to them, like, this is why we do this and you should be doing this. We've covered, we've covered a couple of things already there that make me think about what you will do after playing. I'm not sure how much you've thought about it, but obviously you've done a bit of punditry already and you've given a bit of an insight into how you, you do approach that. But also there, that kind of element of being a mentor to younger players. Have you thought about what you, what you do want to do eventually? I have, but it's not necessarily going to be anything to do with coaching. Like I enjoy speaking to younger players and mentoring younger players. Like I was selected as captain for QPR for three years because of the fact that they were changing direction and going for younger players. And they wanted me to help with the transition, help to um, just teach them about what it is to be a pro. And I love that. And I feel like I had a good effect on those people to the point where, you know, the team, we weren't as, as good as we were from previous years when we had a more experienced setup. But if things would have gone wrong, it was, sorry, if things ever went wrong, it wasn't a case of everything now burnt down. You can teach, you can teach and teach and just try and show them the right way. And a lot of those players, they could end up having really good careers. And I feel like I'll be a significant part of it. Um, so, yeah, but not, as I say, I've got no interest in coaching. I, I'm looking forward to having a break, to be honest. I like the thought of weekends where you just you wake up and it's not a case of right the game's at three i need to eat at eleven forty-five or anything like that i just want to because especially as, as after i had children and then the children then went to school like everyone else will be able to attest to this like when the kids when you don't have to get your kids ready for school what a great feeling that is like just wake <laughs> up in the morning and be like yeah here we are here saturday so i'm looking forward to just having a break i might do certain bits of in quotation marks, punditry, but overall, I think it's just, I don't know, I'll, I'll have to see, I'll have to see, but I only really want to do things which I enjoy, and I enjoy giving a different perspective about things, and just trying to grow people's mindsets about certain things and issues, so whether that's in sport or somewhere else, we'll have to see, but it's definitely something I'm looking forward to doing. Okay, probably not the thing you expected me to pick up on from that, but Given how we talk about, and everybody talks about the changes at City over the last few years, how did your pre-match meal change from when you were first coming through 
to the kind of stuff you eat now? Because I would imagine it was all, I, I can imagine it was very different at the start. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was, it was, so way, way back then, you know, it was less, not that it was not scientific, but it was less scientific. You know, they'd say, just eat some pasta, just eat some of this, just eat some whatever. We weren't necessarily staying in hotels like um, under Mancini at City. We used to stay in hotels for um, home games and away games. So the food was really, really controlled. And it was very specific. This is what we're going to have, that's going to have. There's not going to be any of this, not going to be any of that. And, you know, you kind of buy into it because obviously they come bringing it from a point of performance and scientific knowledge about that. Um, but from back when, you could just eat whatever you wanted. People say, oh, you should eat your carbs, you should eat your proteins, you should do this. And you're like, yeah, carbs, carbs, carbs. Okay, so that's rice. Or is that chips? Or is that uh, just a loaf of bread? But now, actually, believe it or not, I'm in a place where I know what I should be having, but I don't worry if I don't have it or if I can't have access to it. Because I understand, ultimately, it's kind of like, for me, the concept of a superstition. At some point, it will let you down. So why do you continue to force it uh, when, I was, when I was younger? And uh, I think High Redknapp was the manager at QPR. We had a Friday and a Sunday game. And he said, half the team, half are you going to play on Friday and then the other half are going to play on Sunday. So I played on the Friday and then I just cut loose on that Friday and Saturday like to the point where I was just happy, just eating whatever I wanted. And then we came in on Sunday and he said, here's the team. And myself and Danny Simpson were both playing again. <laughs> okay. And, in, and interestingly, I played better in the game on Sunday than doing the game on Friday. So from that point, I said, well, it is what it is, isn't it? You try your best, but ultimately there's a lot more going on between your ears than there is in your stomach sometimes. Uh, you mentioned superstitions there. I imagine you're a man who's got very little time for them. Like, what is the maddest one you've seen in a dressing room over the years? Because there must be loads. Yeah, there's, there are quite a few. I've, I've heard corny things like one of my teammates always used to put his headphones on just before he went out and listen to Lose Yourself by Eminem. Like, couldn't be <laughs> any more corny, corny a cliche. Yeah, it's so corny. Um, to the way people have to do certain things at certain times. Like, if we uh, exactly one hour before the game, they must do this, they must do that, and they have a very set structure. But then I've also seen that works just fine until the team runs late to a stadium. And then I've seen people mentally unravel as the schedule goes out the window. You know what I mean? Uh, people have to get in the line at a certain point. Like, they won't let you go, they won't let, they won't go out before you've gone out. It's just, they must listen to music. I can't speak to this person. I can't do this. I must kiss this guy's head before I go out. There's an infinite number of things. Yet still, I've been in dressing rooms where I've always had a team that's lost at least once every year. <laughs> but still, the superstitions live on. So, you know, it's each to their own. I, I appreciate over time, like, some people with the superstitions, they're deadly serious about it. Even though you could present an argument to show that it means nothing. It's just what makes them comfortable. And as I say, I've seen people unravel when they can't do what they always do. So I, I like to, cause especially because they're on my team, so I like to let them feel like they feel good before we go out. Because if they feel good, they'll do more. It'll make my job easier and make, us e make it easier just winning the game. So I was always letting them, if they want to do 10 cartwheels before a game, do 10, go wild. But I just hope it makes a difference. You're talking about managers, uh, Mark Hughes having that impact there and, and also Harry Redknapp, you Worked with Neil Warnock briefly and Ian Holloway, um, all kinds of different managers over the years. Kevin Keegan, is is there any in particular that you got on particularly well with him in Hubchall game? So my first game was actually under Kevin Keegan. So he uh, he taught me from a young age. Like there was sometimes where say someone would play a channel ball and you chase it down, and then you just knock it out for a throw in or something. You defend from there. 
but he really tried to emphasize so just try and show some personality and get the ball and keep it in play and coming through the academy that was the first proper time where that was being emphasized so that was that was good because he just wanted to play i think i was very lucky to have a manager like that for that period of time where the emphasis was just play just play just play sven gorn erickson i really liked him as a human he's the definition of like a player's coach he just He's always thinking about you with everything that he's doing. And he knows the certain things which you have to do as a player, whether it's a case of fitness or understanding things tactically. But he would never force it to the point whereby the players start to struggle. So it was fun playing for him. Um, and then after that, people I got, I still speak to to this day. I still speak to um, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. He was, he, was a, he was a really, really, really nice guy. He was a very stern manager, but I respected what his thoughts were on things so it was always very very hard in training but he's pushing you to be the best and he was consistent with pushing everybody which i really liked there was no favoritism whatsoever and you know if i wasn't even though i was his captain if i was mess if i was to have a mess around he'd show me up in front of all the team and it'd be the same as if someone was training for the first day would mess around he'd show him up in front of the whole team and i think that sets the tone for a good environment to work in overall he's probably looking back i think i could be wrong but i think he's probably my favorite well you briefly mentioned last time we spoke for the the infamous David James going up front afternoon. Yes. But honestly, th- that goal was outrageous though, wasn't it? Like The, the funny yeah. thing when I spoke to David James was he was so annoyed about that goal. I don't know why. That's just goalkeepers being mad, I guess, because it was it was an outrageous goal. But that's, that's I didn't expect you to say he was your your favourite coach. That's, re- that's really interesting. Honestly, so he's um, he was really funny and he could be stern, as I say, he could be stern as well. But Maybe I just had a soft spot for him because I used to watch him on TV. You know what I mean? And he was like, this was an elite, elite player. From watching the hammer shots in at Old Trafford to volume stuff in wherever. Like, this is Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. And he came in. He had a really good personality. And I, like, overall, like, I liked his ideas. He was building stuff at QPR, but it never worked out. But I liked him as a coach. And, yeah, as a consequence, he was always... He's just a guy. I just really love love just being around him. Clearly, we're talking a lot about QPR, and there did come a time when you had to leave Man City to go to QPR. And for someone who's clearly such a big City player and a big City lad, I don't think anybody listening to this podcast would expect that decision to have been your own. Um, so, Roberto Mancini, you said something in 2010, which is exactly what Stephen Ireland told me about a few months ago. And he said, from the very first day, I just felt like he didn't like me. My face didn't fit anymore, and I thought he was going to get rid of me. And that's basically what you said in 2010. Yeah. Now, Roberto Mancini, what happened? In terms of all the managers which I've had, he was very, very different. Like, he was probably the one who fully believed in everything he was saying all the time. And if you didn't, then you were wrong. Was There was never anything which was going to slightly adapt. It's like, this is what it is. Like, when he first came in, we'd be training at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, but it's winter, so we've got brought floodlights to the training pitch and stuff like this, which is very much against English culture of football, but that's what it is. We'd be doing two-and-a-half-hour sessions, which, again, is a long session for English football, but that's just what it is. And he just had some ideas. Like, I'll never forget, he when he first came in, he said, he said I was too slow, even though I was probably one of the fastest players on the team. He said, Johnny Lescott's calves are too small. <laughs> And he said Rocky Santa Cruz's quads were too small, I think. And like those are things which, they sound ridiculous, but he genuinely believed those in his head. And again, it was a guy like, if you, you could get injured today, if he's your coach, and it could be what normally would be like a four-week hamstring strain, 
And he'd get into the physio room and say to you, no, this is just one week. So now you're under pressure to try and come back in a week, but you know you're not going to be fit in a week. And ultimately, he will now judge you if you're not back in a week. Even though it's the medics who are saying, this is how long the injury is. He's one of them. He had his, he had his own standards and his own beliefs. And if you didn't, if you weren't part of it, then that was it. It's game, set, and match. Like you've got no chance of playing at all. You were just out. And it was a shame, but it happened to a lot of us. Were you under any illusions when you came back? Like you went to Sunderland, played most of the season, played well. What were you thinking going back to City? Did you think I could be all right here, or did you think this guy's still not going to have it? So at the end of that season, my aim was to go back to City and see if I can break back into that team. Because I understood the manager more. I understood the City team more as well after the year of being away. Like, Because, you know, you start to hear stories from your teammates, you get a feel for like what he actually is because that was his first full season. And so like, I just wanted to be back because that was my home and that was my team. So I actually went to see uh, the manager. I think it was the last week of the season, maybe just before. And I was saying, and I was speaking to him, saying, oh, you know, I'd like to come back next year, uh, see if I can try and break into the team again. You know, congratulations on the year that you're having, and so on, blah blah blah. And he's like, okay, that's that's good, that's good. I'll, uh, he said, I'll get, I'll get back to you. So I was like, oh, this is this is promising. And then I got married that summer, and on my. Uh, honeymoon we were in san francisco and uh we went on a helicopter ride i landed and i saw i had a missed call from my rig i think it was you left me a voicemail listen to the voicemail i said no he's not interested you need to go and find go find football somewhere else <laughs> so wow this was day one of my honeymoon i thought oh my goodness gracious me but ultimately like i say like he's entitled looking back now he's entitled to his opinion and to say and do whatever he wants but it's just i found that hard to take just because like what a change! I just you, do you send players on loan so that they disappear forever, or do you send players on loan so that they can keep playing football and then come back to you and then benefit? Because at that point I was like twenty four, it's twenty four when I left, so I'm not exactly old. The people got the people who in this day and age, because um, of the way the academy systems are set up now, who are making their debuts at twenty three for their for their parents' side. So it's fine, but no, you just didn't. He had, he had no interest, so I came back and um, I thought I was going to be back for pre-season just to train and then to have to look for elsewhere. But then there was uh, it was a Saturday before we were supposed to start pre-season on a Monday and I got a text saying just uh, you'd have to come in until the following Saturday. So I said, oh, cool, I had another week off. But it wasn't. It was just me and four others. Adebayor, Wayne Bridge, Craig Bellamy. I think maybe one more. They got told us basically, like, you know, the first thing going to come in on Monday, train till Friday, go to America on Friday. And then the rest of us are going to come in and train with the under-16s, essentially. And then that was that. Why did you not leave that summer? Well, that's an interesting one. So I thought I was going to leave that summer. And we were looking for options and things like that. But there was never actually a concrete option that came on the table. So it didn't. I think maybe some teams were looking for loans and whatever. But in the end, nothing. And then it was it was the most awkward time because the last day of that transfer window, I was adamant I was going to leave somewhere. So I said bye to everyone. Oh. And then I sat in, sat in front of the TV watching the yellow ticker tape on Sky Sports News, waiting to see or hear something for the whole day. Nothing. So then I've got to carry all my boots and stuff back into the training ground the next day. And then it got weirder still because I trained with the first team that day after not training with them all pre-season, basically. And then three days later, I was, on a, I was in the squad for their first Champions League game ever against Napoli. I was like, what is going on here? 
Is that really how it works on transfer deadline day? That would be the first you'd know about it. My agent was in contact and stuff like that, saying he's speaking to this place, speaking to that place. And time's ticking, time's ticking, time's ticking. And stuff gets leaked all the time. So I wouldn't necessarily, like he could be just about to call me. And then some it might be a story on TV saying such and such has been spotted here or someone who's speaking to this club. Or City could say like, then let me speak to this club or whatever. You know, stuff which I'm not in the room for, which they can announce themselves. So I was there thinking, okay, well, Major's going to tell me the moment something's going on and he said just something's going to happen. But in the end, there was nothing concrete that happened. So yeah, that just left me in that in that very, very awkward situation. Maybe I was naive to say bye to everyone, but then also I'll say it's the most awkward driving and like walk into a training ground I think I've ever had in my life. And how did the next six months go? <sighs> well, thankfully it wasn't six months, but um, it was... It was very, very weird because I was mostly training with the first team now. I was in the squads and playing for the League Cup. I think maybe I snuck into an FA Cup game. Uh, wasn't really anywhere near it in the league, except I, I played one game, which was just before I left. And myself and Wayne Bridge, we were with, we were with the uh, training with the first team. And like, whenever it came down to things like international breaks, <laughs> what would happen would be um, the manager would be like, okay, this is the last international break of the calendar year so you know everyone's gonna have eight days off blah 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 so you're like, oh that's cool let's so i'm saying to my father let's go somewhere let's do something and then the day before i was say the day when they finished the game on a saturday which we weren't in the squad for he says no but you're in five days this week stuff like that and you're like, like what and you couldn't you never knew why he was treating you differently but you could never question it because he didn't take being questioned very well because he had his way and you had to believe in it. Otherwise, there's no point in you even being there. It was a nightmare for you, basically. Did nobody just go into, you know, the, the metaphorical knock on the, the manager's door? Did nobody go and have a word? Or was it literally just like, there is no point with this guy? You know, he was relentless with his approach. So you can go and speak to him. But what difference does it make? Like, one time I spoke to him because I was playing reserve games uh, every other week. But only me and no one else in the first team that wasn't playing. So I just wondered, like, why, why was going on after, like, four weeks? And he, he literally just said to me, what, do you not want to play football? Uh, I said, like, how do you answer that? Of course you want to play football. So then if you say, yeah, then you have to leave the room. That's it. Because you know the way it would go. If you say, but, yeah, I want to play, but, like, why is it just me doing this? They say, okay, don't play anymore. And then from that point, you hold the biggest grudge against you that you could ever imagine. A lot of City fans listen to this, I, I would imagine 99.9%. Love Roberto Mancini, obviously... He did huge things for the club. Um, I don't, I'm not expecting you to suggest this, but I, I, I would say if he treated his players better, he probably would have stayed at City longer, arguably been more successful, arguably would have won the FA Cup, that second one. But never mind that. The things that you can control, really, because you mentioned it, not so much for players like Adebayor and Bellamy, who'd, who'd been around, but guys, you know, you mentioned at your age, you, Stephen Ireland, guys I, I happen to have spoken to in exact same situation. The kind of thing I mentioned earlier, you know, if you get a, a bad bit of luck, that can affect your whole career then. So all of a sudden, Stevie Ireland's gone to Villa, which is a club that sacked Martin O'Neill about, well, hours or days after he, he signed there. You went to, to Queen's Park Rangers, which obviously you stayed there for, for six years, but all of a sudden you, you're now at a club with completely different expectations. Yeah, 100%. But then that's just the way the football works. You know, we, we're oh, looking at it through like a... 
a vision of just about Man City, but it's happening up and down the country. And the game is ultimately led by opinions. It doesn't have to necessarily be facts in the same way that I had a manager uh, in Harry Redknapp who had the chance to get Harry Kane on loan when he was younger. And he said, no, he's not good enough. He's not going to score goals. You know, that's an opinion which was held about Harry Kane literally two, a year, two years before it became England's new talisman. So, you know, it's just, it's the way that it is. And don't get me wrong, I think that, I think that I've always been good enough to be able to play in the Premier League and to play in the Premier League for my whole career. But from when you take a step to a club who doesn't have the same level of stability like a City or other teams which are in the Premier League, you become a part of that system and a part of that scenario and situation. Uh, so I ended up spending a lot of years outside of the Premier League and it was uh, it was a shame. But then, as I say, as I've gotten older, I don't I don't have any resentment towards any of that. Like, I don't have resentment towards Mancini. Like, I wish he was a better person, but he is what he is and he brought success to the football club, which, which I obviously have to give him credit for. But like you said at the start, if he was better, if he had more people skills, I think he would have been in that job for longer and he would have found more success. Because it always felt like the players, when they were doing really well, it was in spite of, of him instead of because of him. Because they were just such an elite bunch who all got along incredibly with each other and understood each other's games. So QPR, I mean, obviously we're glossing over a huge part of the story here, albeit just one day, but um, returning to City on the last game of that 2012 season, which we've personally spoke about and I'm covering in an article this week. So if anyone's listening and wants to hear about that, Read that article. But so as for the rest of your time at QPR, obviously you mentioned Harry Redknapp a couple of times there. Everyone's got a Harry Redknapp story. What's yours? Poor, When he first came in, the club was really, really struggling. And I was surprised um, at how he wasn't as much of a motivator as he, he appeared from the outside. I was very, very surprised. Like he's someone who's basically led by his coaching staff. Because I always thought, you know, it's Harry Redknapp. This is a guy who was potentially going to manage England and this, that, and the other. And overall, there was a, like, it was fine. It was better by the end. But at the start, I really just I didn't understand him. I don't think he understood me. I remember him being really annoyed when we went to Dubai one time for, um, for a, like a warm weather thing. And he hates people drinking. And I think a few of the players at the time might have been drinking to the point where we trained the next day and the training session was a mess. But that's something that I pride myself on not doing. And he took that out on me, even though I had nothing to do with it. It was a very weird time, as I say, we're in Dubai and he was losing his knot in this training session, but he kept throwing it at me, throwing it at me. But I was one of the few sober people on the field who was actually trying to train hard. And uh, yeah, then I, he didn't, didn't say a word to me for two months, I think it was. And then all of a sudden, in typical managerial fashion, the team we were getting killed away at Fulham, I think it was. And he turned around to me on the bench and says, hey, come on, you need to get ready. I need you. I need you. I was like, oh, my goodness gracious mm-hmm. me. But like I say, by the end of it, it was, it was fine. It was, a working, it was a working relationship. But for a long part of it, like, I don't know what was going on. But we were, so, we were such a disappointing team. And I don't think he had the right stuff in him at that time to try and help us even though from the outset you would have thought that you, that you would. Yeah, that's interesting. I know we're, prop- we're straying into QPR podcast territory here, but the makeup of that team in the, your second season there was incredible. And you would think, you know, the team stayed up, obviously, in those circumstances on the last day at City. And then you had a few Champions League winners and players like that. And you'd think, OK, yeah, that seems like a sensible uh, way to go. Julio Cesar, Jisung Park, Basingwa, I always remember, going from Chelsea. Um, but... I mean, what was the problem with that? Because obviously there was. 
a problem. Yeah, there were, yeah, there were there were there were problems. Yeah, but it wasn't necessarily um, down to those players or whatever. I think the way that the club is, the club is a good football club, but it's an eighteen thousand seater stadium with a fan base, which in the last few years is very used to being in the championship, and the people who are their idols, which is fair enough because they've done really well for the club, are players who were sort of built in the championship and league ones and so on. So that what is the makeup and what is the identity of the club? Ultimately, you say it's the fans and what they expect to see on the field. And to then go into year two and to try and step up and develop, and now you bring in some of the Champions League winners and Esteban Ganel from Real Madrid and all this, but then you also keep the people who help them get up and who've been there for three, four, five years who are the heartbeat of the club. Like when things are going well, everything's fine. But the issue comes then when things start going wrong. Because as I've seen for many, many years, as soon as things start going wrong, people start to gain their own opinions of what needs to happen for it to go right. But now you're in a dressing room where you could have 10 different opinions. Or even if it's less than that, you could have the opinion of somebody, say, maybe like a Jane Mackie or Quinn Hill, who have really gone through it with the club. And they're used to be in a position whereby if you're in the Premier League now and you want to start winning games, you need to have fight but then you can be next to somebody who's come from Real Madrid. And if you're losing games, you need to have character. And every single week, you're losing, you're losing, you're losing. So some of that disappointment starts to come out. And maybe you don't agree with what the coach is saying. And if you don't agree with what the coach is saying, then you don't necessarily give something your full effort or whatever. I'm not like I'm not naming names or anything like that, but going out to training with people who have different views to each other who are playing on the same team, trying to achieve the same thing, all you've got to show for it are just losses recently. Like that's a very, very tough environment to be in. Um, yeah, as I say, it just didn't it didn't work out. And it's just it, it was it was one of those things like on in a different year, maybe it would have done if we started off better. But overall, as I say, there was too much of a mix in terms of mentalities, personalities and just abilities. And ultimately it's not it's not gonna work. Being a city fan, how much do you get to see of the team currently? I'm seeing them and I'm I'm very, very impressed. Don't get me wrong, the last two years, you could argue, Liverpool overall been more consistent. But this City team here, to see where they are now compared to one moment in the, I think it was in the 90s when I was a ball boy and I was watching them lose at home at Main Road to like Bury or something like that. To then see them at this stage now where there's no team where you don't fancy them is, yeah, it's remarkable. Do you think people realise how good this City team is, how difficult it is to get a team to play that kind of football with that intensity for so long and to have such good results in terms of the style of play as well. How difficult is that? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, again, that's a very good question because people can come in, coaches can come in with ideas, but ultimately a lot of coaches fail. And most coaches who come in with radical new ideas, it tends to not last very long within, a, within any post. But Pep's come in and he's had a workforce and players who've really bought into a system, but not bought into it for 80% of the time. They're 100% all in with it with strategies which maybe they've never done before in their careers. He's coached them to a point to understand, to a fault, where they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to view the game and do things. And that's very, very hard as a player sometimes because you could have spent the first 20 years of your, career, of your life playing a particular way. And to really gain an understanding of how impressive it is, you'd have to really see the difference between now and a few years ago. And if you could really sit down and truly analyse that and see the difference in the players and how they play, I think that's when you truly start to see how remarkable it is. Because again, as I say, 
they've been so consistent with their approach. When you see Man City now, you know exactly how they're going to play. And that's because they're so consistent with what they've been told and how they how they play with each other. The one thing that really winds me up in terms of analysing football, and you know, like everyone's got their opinions, they might be right, I might be wrong. But the idea that, oh, well, they've got good players so they could be expected to win, or like the idea that this somehow comes easy, or even going back to his Barcelona team, Guardiola's Barcelona team, just because he had good players, that somehow meant it was a walk in the park. I mean, that drives me mad, and I'm just interested to know. I'm basically planting a statement here for you to agree with or disagree <laughs> with, but there yeah, we go. What, yeah. what do you reckon? Yeah, that's, that's, I'm, I'm on your side. I think it does help yeah, you've got good, good players, <laughs> but then it, yeah, I think it does help you've got good players, but it's always going to come down to how well they coach and how they're motivated as to how much success you'll find. Because there are plenty of teams where you can go man to man and say, oh, yeah, this is as good as that, or that's as good as that. Yet still, they don't always find success. Because you can have a team and you can coach them the, the wrong way and then find nothing. Or you could have a team that's incredibly, I'll put in quotation marks, demotivated. But maybe that's just because they don't enjoy doing what they do or they disagree with the tactics or something like that. So you don't get the same sort of team. When everyone fully buys into it and they have the talent and they know what they're supposed to do. You could put, I think you could put them in any, any team in the Premier League and it'd make them better. So even though you have the good players, I think he knows how to get the very most out of them and he knows how to get the most out of them based on his approach to the game, which is one which obviously yields success. Last question. Do you do you still get joy as a fan? Are you still a fan? Do you still watch them? Do you still support them? Do they still bring you joy when you watch them? Are you still sad when they lose? Are you happy when they win? Yeah, well, the joy is the same, but the sadness is different because I've, I've had to, as the years have gone by, like when I first started playing as a City fan in that City team, Every time they'd lose, it would affect me for the week in the same way it would do like a fan. You know, I was one of them. Like, if we didn't play the right way and we lost to someone we shouldn't have lost to, like, I'm going to be really quiet for the whole week, whole week ahead and take things personally if people come in on a Monday and they're just laughing and joking. But as you get older and you play more games, you realize, like, this is part of the game. You can't win every single game, but you can prepare for the next one. So, yeah, as a player, I start to pick that up and try and not let it affect my life too much and now it's the same here like I'd, I'd, if City won every single game throughout the season I'd be the happiest man alive but if they lose the occasional game and they still achieve their goals then I'm still happy you know I don't have those same lows anymore like I know the sense of a big game I know what it means to win derby games like I'm disappointed how many times they've lost United in the last couple of years but ultimately they're still on a very very strong path towards incredible success and I'm so happy that that's happening to my team Nedum, thanks very much for joining me on this week's edition of Why Always Us. I'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.